Way back in 1984, Elspeth Beard returned from a solo trip around the world by motorcycle. And when she got back, she realized that she was the first British woman to do that trip. So she approached a couple of magazines and talked to some editors. She couldn't seem to interest anyone in her story. So? So I got back and I, nobody wanted to know. So I put all my, my books, my diaries, my journals, my photographs in just a cardboard box. And that is where it stayed for 30 years. I didn't even look at it. But times have changed. It was actually an agent in Hollywood who had seen an article on the internet and they wanted to buy the right to my story. Adventure Rider Radio is supported by, in part, Max BMW Motorcycles, who's been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your electrical system and will inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty, which is new. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. See it for yourself at www.cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, who offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding green chili adventure gear is also the exclusive usa distributor for outback motor tech a canadian company that specializes in high quality protection for motorcycles available at www.greenchiliadv.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Fields. Justin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheel Works. Bernard Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiff Nikos. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cannon. Nathan Millwall. Yeah. Walter Colbatch. Joe Rowe. Crystal Bayer-Vajri. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Pike. Robert Wicks. Spencer Conlon. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Okay, my name is Elspeth Beard. I, uh, I live uh, just outside London in the UK, and I am an architect. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Now, I think at this point, probably the listener is thinking, okay, where are we going with this? <laughs> now he's interviewing an architect. <laughs> well, you know, I guess we were just looking for something different. No, that, that's not it at all. Of course, because before you were an architect, you were, uh, um, I, 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 don't th- I don't know that's fair. I was just going to say before you were an architect, you were an adventurer, but I think adventure comes in, in all different shapes and sizes. So let me just say before you were an architect, before you were completely an architect, you went on a yeah. motorcycle journey of epic proportions. I did, yes. I, I had just finished my first three years architecture um, and I, I was 23 years old and I wasn't really sure that I wanted to carry on doing architecture. So uh, I decided to, uh, to ride my motorbike around the world. Were you riding motorcycles before you decided to ride around the world? 
I started riding bikes when I was about 16. Um, a friend of mine uh, took a, a, a bike to uh, sort of the um, Salisbury Plain, which is a sort of army training base where you can ride off, off-road. And he had a Husqvarna. Uh, and he taught me how to ride. And at the time, I kind of thought it was it was sort of kind of fun, but I didn't think it was that great. Um, and then about a year later, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I was in London and I was uh, going to a college in London and a friend of mine had a little Yamaha YB100 and he was selling it. So I thought it would just be a really uh, cheap and easy way to get around London. So I bought the bike for um, for a hundred pounds, and this must have been about 1978, 79. And I had that bike for about a year, and then I bought a slightly bigger bike, uh, which was a Honda 250, and I had that for about a year. And it was actually when I bought my 250 that I suddenly it suddenly dawned on me the the you know that you could actually travel. Uh, distances on a bike and um, I mean I didn't do big distances I would I just went down to see my grandmother and I just kind of went you know sort of short trips sort of out of London but I think it was the first time it actually I actually realized that you know the capability of traveling on a on a motorbike um, and about a year later I bought my BMW R60 stroke six um, and it was really when I bought that bike that the sort of seed was sown to, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if I could actually ride this bike around the world? Had you heard of other people who had ridden around the world at that point? Is that what got you thinking I'd, about it? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd heard of Ted Simon, who wrote a book called Jupiter's Travels, although I hadn't read the book at all, but I had heard of Ted Simon. And I think he got back in 78. I think he was away from 74 to 78. So I'd sort of heard of him. So I knew it was sort of possible to do. But, you know, he was a bloke. So I thought it'd be a lot easier for him to do it than uh, than for a woman to do it. Well, that's true, though, isn't it? I mean, don't, yeah. don't you think that's, that is correct? I think it is in some ways. I think I think traveling as a woman has both advantages and, you know, disadvantages. I think you, I think as a woman traveling, you you don't appear as a sort of threat to people. So I think you're, you know, you're more welcomed into people, into locals' houses. You're, and it, I mean, in many parts of the world where I was traveling, you know, I sort of felt that, that the local people would welcome me in and try and sort of protect me because they saw me as a kind of lone woman traveling and and it was almost it's a dangerous place out there so you must come in and we'll keep you safe and I don't think I would have got that had I been you know a man traveling on my own and the other thing I think you have to remember is that when I was riding my bike and I wore my full face helmet and all my leathers most people in those days automatically assumed I was male it didn't occur to people it was a woman riding a bike because women just didn't ride big bikes and women certainly didn't ride big bikes in those sorts of countries. So as long as I kept my helmet on, most people assumed I was, a, I was male. And, and so I kind of used that. So I think in some ways it's an advantage, but some ways it isn't. You were three years into school. Just mentioned that you weren't sure whether you wanted to continue on and become an architect. 
And is that what made you decide that this was the time you'd uh, decided this was the time you're going to attempt to ride around the world? Well, it was a combination of things. I mean, the seed was sown that I'd like to try and ride around the world. And it was in my final year or, or my final, my, my third year, uh, I was madly in love with uh, this, with Alex, who I met uh, at college. And our relationship sort of ended. So I was broken hearted. And, um, and that happened about month before my finals. So my finals, I did really, really badly in, and I was sort of broken hearted. So I think it was a combination of both of those things that made me think, actually, now's the time to go. I need to escape. I need time to think. Now's the time to go. So how long did it take you to pull it together and, and get on the road? I finished, uh, I finished uh, at the university in, uh, in the June and I left in October. So I worked in a pub. I worked for, I did every day, every night in a pub and I saved two and a half thousand pounds. So I don't know what, what the equivalent in US is for that, but um, it wasn't a loss of money. But I sort of reckoned with that, I would, it would get me to Australia. Because what I decided to do, because the previous year I had flown out to Los Angeles and I had bought an old R75 slash five and uh, and rode that from Los Angeles to uh, over to the East Coast. So I'd, I'd ridden across America. So it was a, it was a sort of known quantity. I felt comfortable riding across America and I felt comfortable that the money I had would should get me to Australia where I hoped I could work and get some more money to continue my journey. So I, I worked from the May to the October and then I, I actually left October the 2nd, 1982. You know better than that now though. You wouldn't leave on a trip without enough money to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you kind of, I was young, you know, you do these things when you're it's young. It's great you though, isn't it? There's something about <laughs> ignorance, isn't there? <laughs> you know, I know. Ignorance is bliss. I mean, I know that's just a, such a common little phrase, but I mean, it's true. It is. There's something about it and, and it works. I mean, you're here now. Yeah. And I was so determined that I was going to, I was going to do it and I was going to complete my goal, which was to ride around the world and nothing was going to stop me. And I would have, you know, if I had to work in New Zealand, I would have worked in New Zealand picking apples. I, if I worked in Sydney, if I ran out of money halfway around America, I would have just, you know, stopped there and got a job and carried on. I mean, I just, I just took sort of each day or week as it came and I didn't really plan that much you know i just knew i was heading west and that was about as far as i as you know as far as i planned what do your friends and family say you know you're packing up obviously they can see your heart broken over this uh, this breakup and you're about to take off and do something i mean as we said women just weren't doing this. I mean, they still aren't to a large degree. I mean, there's a lot more doing it now, but, yeah, but I mean, yeah. in 1982, it's just something that, um, I mean, I know my reaction would have been, that's crazy. Well, my mom did everything she could to stop me. I mean, she actually threatened to disinherit me if I left. <laughs> um, and I got never, you know, darkened our, our doorsteps again, if you go. But I think it was just her, her desperate, you know, she was desperately worried about all the things that could happen to me. So she certainly tried. And I think most of my friends, they, they just, uh, I think, to be honest, most of them probably thought I, I would be back in about, 
you know, in, in a month's time. They, they, I don't think any of them really thought I would do it. Uh, I mean, a lot of them kind of laughed or I sort of felt I was, I was laughed at really behind my back and that nobody actually thought I would do it, which, which made me more determined that I was going to do it and, and I was going to prove that I could do it. You mentioned your goal, um, and uh, clearly it was to, to go around the world, but were you setting goals before that for everything? Are you sort of a, a natural goal setter in life where you're, you know, like uh, when you're going to school, you're setting your goals and trying to meet them? No, I wouldn't say I was actually. I think I think the round the world trip was this was this it was it was this big kind of dream that I had, and and I know now it, it, it probably sounds a bit silly, but in those days I didn't even know whether it was possible for me to do it. I mean, the world was a much much bigger uh, place then. I mean, there was no internet, there was no mobile phones, no GPS. I mean, there was nothing. And so just trying to find out about countries was really difficult. I remember just trying to get maps of countries was really, you know, I mean, I, I mean, the map of Thailand that I eventually found was one like, you know, was one A4 piece of paper with a few lines on it. And that was it. And, you know, so you really had to, you know, you had to, you know, use the compass, follow the sun, work out what worked, because there was just no, you know, there were no guidebooks to tell you where to stay or where to eat or where to go or, or nothing. And so it, it, and you really felt as if you were, I mean, I certainly felt as if I was on a real adventure. I mean, I was on the kind of edge of, of exploration, which I know now probably does sound a bit daft, but I really did feel that, that I was really pushing the, you know, the boundaries and, and, and doing something that nobody else had done and it felt great take us back to that day that you left back in 1982 what was that like well it was a it was a bit of a strange day because i started my trip in new york i'd already taken my bike down to the docks in london and crated it up and shipped the bike so my bike had left two two or three weeks before i actually flew um, so me departing was literally just my parents and my brother driving me to the airport and I just got on a Pan Am flight and flew to New York. So it wasn't, it wasn't sort of me riding down the road, waving bye to everybody. It wasn't really like that. It was a, it was a slightly sub, subdued, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and I remember at the airport after my parents left, I just cried for about an hour. And I was just all these doubts and thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, it's now's the time. Now I can't turn back. All these sort of thoughts going through my mind. But I think when I got on the plane and then I, you know, once I was in New York and I got and I was reunited with my bike, you know, I started to feel better about things. But I, I was very apprehensive. I mean, I'd never done anything like that before. And, you know, I knew my bike fairly well. I'd, 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 you know, I'd stripped the engine down, a, well, bits of it. And, but I, I really had no idea what I was doing. So you, you're starting in New York. And where did you head? Uh, from New York, I went up to Binghampton. And then I went down to Detroit, where my aunt lived, and I stayed with her for a few days. And then I headed down to New Orleans, and then across through Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, across to LA. And I kind of popped into Mexico briefly, and then went up to Los Angeles. 
where are you staying all this time? Are you staying in hotels? Are you camping? I, I, it was a mix of the two. I, I had a small tent that I carried, and certainly in national parks on the West Coast, I stayed in quite a lot of national parks. But on the East Coast, it was just motels I stayed in, you know, Motel 6s or whatever, whatever I could find, whatever was the cheapest place I could find. And at what point on the trip after starting out in New York did you know that you're going to do it? Because you were saying at the start, there's a lot of feeling of you'd sort of like to turn back or it's it's scary. And, and everybody gets that, don't we? I mean, we go and do yeah. something. It's that, it's that first little bit. Out, it's like going to a new job. You know, your first couple of days there, you just think, I can't do this. You know, this is, this is too much. But then I'll, after a while, it just becomes work a day. Yeah, I think I found, as I say, I, I found riding across America fairly easy because the roads were good. Everybody speaks English. I could get petrol everywhere. You know, you can buy food everywhere. So it was relatively easy. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I mean, I think the time I actually thought I was going to achieve my goal was when I crossed the border from Iran into Turkey. And that was a year and a half later. That was on your way back. You're pretty much done at that That was point. on my, yeah, yeah, that was on my way back. And that was the that was the first time I thought, my God, I'm going to do this. I'm actually going to achieve this. This is prior social media, obviously. I mean, no internet and, and things like that. So when you're doing something like that, you're doing it for kind of yourself. Like you didn't sign up for a Guinness record or anything before you left. Nothing at all. I did it entirely for myself, by myself. I didn't, you know, I had got no press, nothing, absolutely nothing. So there's no reason you couldn't pack it in at any point. I mean, that's, that's sort of running through my mind because I'm thinking if I'm doing something like that and there's nobody sort of watching or, I mean, other than my friends, I guess, when I see them, when I go back I and mean, then I can tell them anything <laughs> at that point, you could have packed <laughs> it in any time, but you followed it right through. Well, you sort of say that, but it would have been, I mean, certainly it would have been fairly easy to turn back when I was in America. That would have been relatively easy to turn around and go home. But once my bike was in Sydney and it was right on the other side of the world, I mean, I'm, it was just, well, it wasn't just as easy, but, you know, I might as well just go back the other way than the way I'd come. And I think the other problem is once I left Australia, and I was traveling through the Far East and India and Pakistan and all of those countries. Because they actually write your bike into your passport, you can't, you can't just leave your bike and fly home. You have to exit the country with your motorbike. And in those days, you couldn't fly bikes. So the only way I was actually, I mean, certainly after I left Australia, the only way I was going to get home was to actually ride my bike home because I couldn't leave it anywhere because those countries you had to uh, have a carnet de passage which you you have to leave a deposit which basically ensures that you don't sell your bike in any of the countries so you are tied to your bike and you're it's to say it's, it's in your passport all the documents are all tied to your bike so you can't just leave it and go oh i'm not feeling very well i think i might just just fly home for a month's rest that that wasn't an option you got to la where did you go from la uh, from LA, I shipped my bike straight to Sydney and I went to New Zealand. So I went, uh, uh, well, actually, I spent a week in Hawaii and then I flew from Hawaii to New Zealand and I spent uh, six weeks hitchhiking around New Zealand because to actually get my bike from Los Angeles to New Zealand and then New Zealand to Sydney was, was really expensive. And I was down to my last, you know, few hundred dollars then. So, um, I went right, and then I flew from New Zealand to Sydney, where I was reunited with my bike. 
and I worked in Sydney for, because I, I literally arrived in Sydney with $50 left. That's all I had. And I lived in a garage with my bike and I got three jobs and I saved six and a half thousand dollars in seven months. Wow, that's that's really good. It's a lot of savings. Three jobs though. Three jobs. I had two architectural jobs. No, I had well, I had two architectural jobs and two pub jobs, and then I gave up one of the architectural jobs. So I just worked in the pub every weekend, every night of the week, and then I worked in architect's office all day, every day. Wow, that's, uh, that's determination, but I guess you knew you needed it for the trip. Did you end up finishing with any money in your pocket? I came back with $1,000, which I was very proud of. <laughs> <laughs> so better to, to arrive home not broke, because then you, you look like you're still holding on to everything. Yeah, but, but I also, when I was traveling, I always liked to have a reserve amount of money because I was worried if I had an accident and I was stuck in a hospital somewhere in India or Pakistan and I had to look after and I had to pay for things myself, I, I, I needed to have a sort of reserve amount of money. So I always held back $1,000, which was my kind of, you know, fund in case anything went wrong. Things did go wrong, though, didn't they? You did have a few spots of trouble on the road. I did, yes. I mean, my first, my first really bad accident was when I was in the outback in Australia, and um, and I cartwheeled the bike and landed on my head, and I had concussion. And in fact, the the four days memory is still uh, completely erased. I have no idea what happened. Um, I was picked up by a local farmer. Uh, I think the ambulance had to come 180 miles to pick me up. Uh, my bike was taken to a local farm, and then I was taken to hospital, and then I went back and I and I sorted my bike out and then carried on. But that was like a two-week, you know, that was a, a two-week stop. <laughs> what do you mean? Four, uh, you said four days memory loss. Was that the four days prior the accident or after? It was it was two days prior to the accident, and then I was in hospital because I didn't wake up for a day and a half. And then I just remember waking up in, in hospital. So I can remember sort of two days before I, 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 I had the accident and then I just woke up in hospital. When you're in the hospital laying there and you, you've woken up from this major accident, is that not the time where you feel like, okay, maybe this is, the, this is a bad thing? No, no, no. All I could think about was, was, I mean, I could see I was, you know, I still had two legs, two arms, and I was kind of all right. And, and my first question was, where's my bike? How's my bike? That's all, I, <laughs> that's all I cared about. I'm willing to bet your mum didn't ask about your bike, though. <laughs> no, she hated my bike. <laughs> she hated it. She would, have been, she would have loved to have seen it completely destroyed. Um, no, yeah, but that was my first thought, actually, was about my bike. And when your mum gets the news that you're in the hospital... And and does she get a hold of you and tell you to stop? Well, I don't think she did, actually. I mean, that was the good thing about sort of communications in those days. Everything took a lot longer. And so by the time she actually knew about my accident, I was out of hospital and I was all right. And so it was my, you know, she didn't have people phoning her up from the hospital when I was still unconscious because it was everything took two or three days to you know, messages to get from one side of the world to the other. So by the time my mom found out I was in, I'd had an accident, I was already out, out of hospital. 
Whereas nowadays you would see it on Facebook or someone would see it on Facebook and exactly. it would be immediate. You know, the, you know, technology is great, but there's a lot of things with it that, that aren't so great. And this is one of them. I think, uh, I think there's a lot of things that isn't that great. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I think, I mean, the fact now that you can, you know, you can, you can find out about anything anywhere in the world. I think has sort of taken a lot of the real adventure away from from these sorts of trips because, you know, it was nice not knowing what was at the end of the road or when I could get petrol or where I was going to stay or where, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of traveling on a slightly on edge all the time because you, you just don't know. You're venturing completely into the unknown. And it was a real adventure. Whereas now I think the fact you can find out anything about anywhere, it's, I, I, I can't help thinking something has been lost, which I think is a great shame. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. On a t- recent uh, small trip that I just did, someone was going to give me a complete rundown on it. And, and I said, I, I don't want it, actually. <laughs> I'd rather yeah. go. And even if I miss something, I would rather do that and have that feeling of awe myself. You know, it, it's like getting a gift and someone telling you what's inside before you've unwrapped it. Yeah, and it, exactly. Uh, yeah, but and, also, I, I find that people, when they travel now, they don't they don't actually stop and look at things anymore. All they do is take a picture so they can put it on some blog or Facebook it, and they're not actually looking at where they are or experiencing what they're, you know. And I just think it's, I, I don't know, I think people should, uh, I think if people travel now, they should just take a very simple old phone that you can't get emails. You, all you can do is use it to make emergency phone calls. And I don't think you should take anything else. Because trips like this, it's about getting lost. You know, you need to get lost. I think it's a really important thing when you do trips like that is to get lost and to lose yourself and then find yourself. And I think it's, you know, when you when you get lost and you have to stop and ask a local where, where to go and then they invite you in for a cup of tea. And it, it's the whole experience. And I think by by taking those experiences away by, by over-organizing or GPSing everywhere you go so you never get lost, you're, you know, you're not having all those experiences. I mean, my, some of the most amazing and extraordinary things uh, that happened on my journey were always the unexpected things. They were always the bizarre places I found myself when, you know, I, 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 don't know, I hit a cow in India and I ended up in a river and a, and a, and a load of, of Sikh bikers came along and helped me get it out of the river. And we sat and had a chat on the side of the road for hours. You know, it's situations like that. Whereas if you if you iron all those out and you uh, and you it, 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 it sort of just becomes a series of riding a bike for four or five hours a day which is actually pretty boring. Do you use a GPS now today? I use it a bit. I use it, but I still use a map. I, I, I am a map person. Uh, I, I do like to see where I am in a relation to everything else. I don't like just following a red line. Yeah, it does that, doesn't it? Because just the other day we were driving through a, a city that we don't know. And to find our way, it was it was nighttime, I shouldn't say the other day. It was nighttime. We got off a ferry and we drove through a city because we've been traveling around. And we put the GPS on and we're just following. And, and as we were talking to each other, this is my wife, uh, Elizabeth, who's a producer, and me, we're talking about yeah. the fact that we don't even know where we are or what direction we're going in or what we're going yeah. by. All we're doing is listening to this GPS say, turn right in 400 meters. Yeah. 
It's, and if I mean, if you think about riding around the world like that, I mean, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it does take away just, the whole thing of asking someone, doesn't it? it? It takes away like it just, well, I'm independent. I can find my own way. I need no one. And that's the whole thing with society nowadays. I think that's what technology allows everyone to do. Isolate yeah. themselves. You say, I use my GPS, my phone. But I mean, when you're on a trip like that, it's the interaction with the locals and other people and, you know, immersing yourself in their country and their culture that is the trip that is the adventure that's what you're experiencing it's not sitting on your bike and riding it do you think the trip would be completely different if you did it now because of technology i mean could you ignore it yeah um i think it's very difficult to to ignore it because and i can understand you know because you know all that stuff is out there so why and I think, I mean, I think it's it's good in a, in a lot of ways because I think it sort of enables a lot more people to travel because it gives them this sort of comfort factor that they know they can always be in touch. They know they can always phone up and get, an, you know, it, it, if there's a problem, um, they know they can always find out where to stay or where to eat or what to see or which road to go on. And it's all at the touch of, you know, the, and I, and I think... I think it's good in a way because it encourages or it certainly has encouraged a lot more people to get out there and travel. So back to the misadventures, that wasn't the only one you had. The trip didn't go perfect all the time. You also had one where you hit a dog? Yes, I hit a dog. Yeah, so so my first accident was when I cartwheeled in Australia. The second accident was when I was riding uh, from northern Thailand back down into Malaysia. And, and I hit a dog, um, which and I just came off my bike and ended up in a in a ditch on the side of the road. And it happened right outside um, a sort of Thai family's. It was a sort of farm. And they all rushed out and they all pulled, helped me pull my bike out. And I was, I was fairly, um, I mean, my foot, I broke my toe and my hands were, were very badly injured. So I was quite battered and bruised. My bike, because I'd made these aluminium panniers when I was in Sydney, and uh, my aluminium top box was completely kind of crushed. And they were fantastic. Um, I stayed with them for five or six days. Uh, they were really kind to me. And they helped me to repair my bike and they bandaged me up. And, and I stayed there with them for the, for the four or five days. Uh, and then I think it was literally the day I was leaving I went into the kitchen to um, to say goodbye to the sort of mother of the house, and <laughs> and on the table I saw the dog which I had run over, which uh, which was half <laughs> half butchered, and we'd been eating it for five days, <laughs> and I suddenly realised why they were so. Well, no, I'm sure they weren't, but they were. You know, I'd basically given them enough food for about two weeks, I think. <laughs> So, um, but that's what I mean about the the unexpected things. Yeah, because you would never have tried dog otherwise. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I and I ate it quite happily for for five days without even knowing I was eating it. And it was the dog that I killed, so that was good. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is certainly a story that sticks with you because I'm, I'm sure you don't eat dog now. No, <laughs> never again. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just bizarre. With the technology helping you and, and helping you find it, because like we were sort of talking about, nowadays everything is on the internet. I mean, before anyone does any trip, everyone researches it. And we've talked on the show before about um, how much research is too much, you know, about over-researching things and about how the fact that mm-hmm. that some of that, that discovery, you know, needs to be left in a trip. But with you, it's total discovery. You're before the internet. How did you find how to ship your bike from one place to another? Um, I literally, I would arrive in, uh, like I arrived in LA and I would just look up in the phone book, shipping agencies or whatever, and I would just phone around and I would just phone one and then another. And if one couldn't help me, I'd say, well, do you know someone else who can help me? And then finally I'd find somebody and then hopefully I'd find sort of two or three people and then I'd get different quotes uh, for for them to ship my bike but it was like a three or four day you know exercise just to find somebody to ship your bike and then you'd have to go and visit them and then you'd get it crated up and so it was a everything was much slower it took a lot longer to do these things which I think in some ways was quite nice as well I think the world moves far too quickly these days well, and you probably learn lots, too, by phoning all the different people. You mentioned a thing you used called a phone book. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's going to be people, there's going to be young kids who just do not get what the phone book is. <laughs> well, it's a very thick book full of lots and lots of people's names and phone numbers. <laughs> that you do that you not to- see anymore. <laughs> That you do not see anymore, exactly. That's all we had in those days. That was the internet in those days. You mentioned that you made, uh, that's true, it was, wasn't it? Because it had the yellow pages in it in a lot of times. Yeah. And that was, exactly. that was where you went. I went to the yellow pages. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned making panniers. Why did you make panniers? Well, when I left the UK, I just had some sort of soft, soft luggage. So I just had some throwover uh, panniers and, and just a bag which just tied on the back um, and a tank bag. And, I, and when I was in Sydney, I sort of thought that if I'm going to all these sort of third world countries, I thought I needed luggage that I could lock. So I decided to make my own aluminium panniers which took me three months to make because I really didn't know what I was doing. I sort of made it up as I was going along. But they were, they were actually very good. They were light. They were easily repairable. And I literally I just got angles of aluminium, cut them all, and then I riveted them all and then just put sheets of aluminium on it. And then I just fitted them on, onto my bike. Had you so seen boxes very... like that before? No. Oh, that's really no. neat. So you just came up with the idea thinking you needed something and... and... Well, it was actually an Australian person I met at the bike shop in Sydney, and he had ridden from London to Sydney, and he had done some aluminium uh, panniers. And so he was the one that, that, that sort of tried to, or, or he was the one that, that sort of persuaded me that if I was going, you know, to the Far East and India and all those countries, that I needed something that I could, because the other problem was that when I was traveling on my own, I had to leave my bike. So, you know, if I'm in in India and I've got to go to the market to buy food or I've got to go to the toilet or I've got to go, you know, I had to leave my bike on the street. So you had to be able to lock it all up. You couldn't just have loose bags, otherwise it just would have been nicked. So it was this guy called John Todd, and he had made some aluminium panniers for his bike, and he persuaded me that I should make some for myself. What did you discover on this trip? What, about, about myself? Yeah. Um, I think 
I think the most important thing I discovered was that um, I could do anything and I could solve any problem and there wasn't anything I couldn't cope with or I couldn't deal with. And, you know, and I never took no as an answer. There's always a way around things. You can always find a solution to a problem. And you just have to approach it sometimes in a slightly different way. You have to think slightly out of the box. You have to, and I think it taught me just to, just never to give up. And you just have to keep going, however grim and however miserable and however dire your situation appears to be, there is always a way out. You can always find a way out. Did that change your life completely when you came back? Did it bring you back as a different person? Did your friends see you come back and say, wow, this is, this is something different? I felt I was a completely different person when I came back. I, I, and I think that sort of approach to life or rather, I think that approach or what I learned has been been my whole approach to the rest of my life. I mean, that's why I took on the water tower. And I, I mean, whether I would have taken on a project like that before I'd done my trip or if I had never done my trip, I honestly, I don't know. But when I bought the water tower, it was the same thing. Everybody telling me, you know, no, you can't do it. Nobody's ever done this before. All the, you know, the local council, the local authorities telling me, no, 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 no. And I just thought, well, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way I can achieve this. And I just need to think slightly in a different way. And that's the way I approached it. And nothing was going to stop me. You know, I was going to convert this building if it was the last thing I did. And I was just, again, I was just so determined to do it. And I was just so sure that I could do it. Nothing nothing was going to stop me from doing it. And just to explain further what this tower is, you live in this water tower that you converted. Yes, I live in a, it's a 130 foot high Victorian water tower that was built in 1898. Um, and it's, it's a sort of brick octagonal building with a, with a sort of brick turret on the side. So it looks more like a, a sort of fairy tale folly rather than a it's like a little castle uh, it's not little <laughs> it's like a very big <laughs> castle um and uh yeah so it's and it's just six large rooms each of the rooms have got sort of 18 20 foot high high ceilings uh, and each room is about 28 foot octagon so it's uh, it's a big building you're also writing a book about this adventure. I mean, there's so much more to your story than what we've just talked about now. And, and you're putting a book together as we speak. Yes, I've, I've finished the book. The book's written um, and I have got a publishing deal. And the plan at the moment is to get the book published sort of towards the middle of next year. And do you have a name for the book? I haven't. <laughs> I haven't thought of a title. Yeah, so, you you um, just you did all this book and you haven't thought of a title. Come on, you must have had some <laughs> ideas through your head. I haven't. I haven't thought of anything. I honestly, I cannot think of what I'm. I'm hoping the publishers are going to come up with a good title. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing. It's I'm a really sure. difficult thing to think of. I just thought that after you do all the work of writing the book and then, of course, chasing down a publisher and everything, I thought you would have definitely had a, a name for it in your mind. Uh, but, I mean, actually, it's been very interesting writing the book because when I got back from my trip in 1984 
absolutely nobody was interested in what I'd done. I mean, the bike press weren't interested. Nobody wanted to know. Really? Uh, no, just didn't want to know. It was almost too much for them. You know, they almost just couldn't quite, quite kind of get it and kind of really understand what I'd done. And uh, they just didn't want to know. And I don't know whether it was a, a sort of male biker thing where, you know, where we can't actually have in print this woman's ridden a bike around the world. I, I've no idea. I, I'm still to this day, you know, mystified, but absolutely nobody wanted to know about what I'd done. And I, I can remember one of the bike magazines, I, I actually contacted them when I got back and I kind of explained where I went. And they said, mm, well, said, well, that's not bad. It's not really a round-the-world bike trip, is it, though? And I said, why? And they said, oh, well, you didn't go to um, South America. And I went, oh, okay, sorry. So I put the phone down and then the next uh, month's edition of that very same magazine had a two or three-page article about some bloke who went all the way to south of Spain and back from from <laughs> London. A big trip. I mean, wow, big trip. So that's what, that seems like what it was. And I mean, let's face it, it was male dominated, yeah. right? Yeah, I don't know. So literally, I just so so I got back and I, nobody wanted to know. So I put all my, my books, my diaries, my journals, my photographs in just a cardboard box. And that is where it stayed for 30 years. I didn't even look at it. I just got on with the rest of my life. I finished my architecture training. I bought the water tower. I spent seven years doing that. I started my own um, architectural practice, you know, and I just kind of moved on. It was just like a chapter of my life that was in my past. And it was only about a year and a half ago that I, that I sort of got all these boxes out. And it was an extraordinary thing going through and reading all my diaries and looking at all my photos that I hadn't looked at in over 30 years. And it was, it was, a, and actually writing the book has been a, has been a, it's been actually a very, you know, you know, liberating experience. It's been really fantastic to, to actually just get it down on paper. And I always felt that I wanted to, to get it down on paper because I mean, it was an extraordinary, some extraordinary things happened to me. And I met incredible people and situations and countries and things that happened to me, both good and bad. And, you know, for all that, just to have just be a memory in my mind, it just seems such a shame. So to actually write the book has been a real sort of release in a way. (laughs) Um, And it's so it's great. It's really good. What made you pull those papers out and decide to write a book? Well, it was actually an agent in Hollywood who had seen an article on the internet and they wanted to buy the rights to my story. So they flew me out to Los Angeles and I sort of gave them a a brief summary of my story. But at that time, I hadn't really gone through my diaries in detail. So, and I think they they kind of wrote a storyline, which I wasn't really happy with. And I think I I just felt that the right way to do, the right order to do it in, was for me to do a book first, and then once the book's written, which is the true account of what of what happened, then if they wanted to take that and make it into a film, then they can. So but I didn't want to do it. Sorry. I was going to say, it wasn't that you got there and they said, oh, wait a second, this really wasn't around the world trip. 
completely was it? No, 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 no. They didn't at all. They said, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Times have but changed. They, they, yeah, but I, I, I kind of felt that it was going to end up being a bit too Hollywoodized, if you know what I mean. And it wasn't necessarily going to be about me and my trip. And I didn't want to film um, that. I mean, I'd rather not have a film at all than have a film that I'm not happy with. So, and I, I just felt they didn't, I, I wasn't convinced they really understood me or why I went or um, or what the trip was really about. I, I sort of got the feeling, which might be completely wrong, but I sort of got the feeling that they almost just wanted to make a film about a, a woman riding around the world on a motorbike and sort of attach my name to it to give it some credibility. But that might be a very unfair statement. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that's of and and so I thought that's not what I want um so I thought let's do the book first and the book as I said it was just just going through the whole process of you know I mean it's taken me a year a year to write the book and going through all my diaries and because the other thing what I did um I I used to send these small micro cassette tapes home rather than writing letters so what I would do is I'd talk into this uh, you know machine every every night or every other night and then when the tape was full I would send it home so I've got all my tapes of the whole trip and so now 34 years later or whatever listening to myself you know at, in the outback in Australia or in the middle of India or whatever it's just been a very it's been a very weird experience but it's been really good I've really enjoyed it what advice would you give to the would-be traveler nowadays? Um, I think the advice I would give is to is literally just to get up and go because there are so many people. I mean, the number of people I have heard say, oh, I'm going to do a bike trip one day and they just never do it because there's always an excuse why you don't do it. Oh, I haven't got enough money. Oh, it's not the right time. Oh, I'm going to wait till next year. And actually the hardest thing to do is to actually leave on a trip. Now, once you've left and you're on the road, all your worries and your fears and whatever will just go. And the other thing I would do is I would limit the amount of technology I would take with me. So uh, just to make it more of an adventure. With the way it changed your life, and when I, I say the way, it, your trip, the way it changed your life, your experience, would you recommend that it's a great thing for people to do to go out there and, and maybe really uh, find themselves or, or maybe find a deeper meaning of themselves through that? I think definitely. I think it's, I think everybody should travel, but as long as you travel with your eyes open and travel for yourself, don't travel so you can, you know, you can blog about it or Facebook about it or whatever, you know, you got, you have to do it for yourself. And, and if you do it like that, you know, it, it will, it will change you forever. It really will. Elspeth, it was great to meet you, and I look forward to reading your book, and we'll certainly let our listeners know when the book comes out. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I will let you know, and I'll send you a copy, <laughs> a signed That's copy when it comes fantastic. out. Fantastic. I look forward to that. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. I've been speaking with Elspeth Beard, the first British woman to ride around the world by motorcycle, and she'll have her book out next year, and we'll let you know as soon as it is. Aerostitch is a supporter of Adventure Rider Radio. For 33 years, Aerostitch has been designing, making, and selling equipment that makes riding anywhere, in all weather, easier, safer, and more comfortable, and of course, more fun. 
No other rider's gear offers the proven protection, precision fit, and lifelong value of an arrow stitch. Now remember they have that ride more guarantee. That's if you if you try any arrow stitch, one piece R3 or Roadcrafter classic suit for one month and you're not riding more than you did when you received it, you can send it back, full refund, get the details on the website. Their website, by the way, www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course that forward slash ARR is very important because one, it's going to let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And two, it's going to get you 10% off on your first purchase or free shipping on your next order if you're an existing customer. And I've mentioned to you before, I think, about my tank panniers that I have. They, I just realized they started making them back in 1988. It says so in their catalog. You can go to page 113 in their catalog. It has them in there and it shows a picture of the original ones made. They were originally designed to hold two one-gallon cans of gas, but they're invaluable for weight distribution. So if you haven't got some weight up front, you might want to look at Aerostitch tank panniers. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm speaking with JJ Lewis from the Good Adventure Company. JJ, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be back on the show. So what has happened at the Good Adventure Company this summer? We have been really busy at the Good Adventure Company um, doing a lot of sales, which have been great. A lot of uh, folks have been purchasing stuff from us, so been busy doing that. But most of our time has been, uh, you know, we had a huge trip um, in August. You know, August 6th through 12th, we had um, the best of the backcountry expedition. That was in Utah and Colorado, and we had 11 riders. We stayed in really amazing places, and we stayed in these really epic camp spots, and the riding was just outstanding every single day. Uh, it was just super successful. So what are you doing? You're staying in lodges? Or are you camping? Or how are you handling that? We camped um, most of the nights, except a couple. We stayed in a really cool lodge in uh, Utah. And then uh, the last night, we stayed at uh, the Cottonwood Hot Springs near Buena Vista. So everybody was just, we were just beat. And then we stayed at this awesome hotel and, uh, and were able to kind of soak in the hot springs. And that was a night when there was a huge meteor shower. So a bunch of us kind of went out there at like two and three in the morning and, and laid up, laid out in the pools and watched, you know, watched, you know, all these shooting stars. It was pretty, pretty epic. And the reason we have you on today is you're doing another Copper Canyon trip to raise money for the school, the boarding school in Bato Pilas. That's correct. We've got two trips planned. Um, the first one is November 5 uh, through 12. And we'll be actually staging in Benson, Arizona for both the trips. Um, and the second trip is uh, February 18 through 25. And uh, so the November trip is really for the hardcore off-road or adventurer. So if you um, want a trip of a lifetime uh, and you want to go off-road in, in that part of Mexico, I guarantee you it will be um, outrageously fun and challenging and we'll have a lot of guys uh, there with us and guys who have been down there before, um, s- similar to what we did last year. You know, your last year's one was quite the epic ride, too. You know, that was that was a trip of the lifetime at the last, the, you know, the dinner at the last night. Everyone said around the whole table is that this was the absolute best trip I've ever been on. So, uh, you know, I can I can pretty much guarantee uh, this November trip is going to be similar to that. Uh, so we've got uh, quite a few riders signed up already. And, uh, you know, that we, we do have an early bird pricing. It, the early bird pricing officially ends on September 1st. However, if folks want to use the, the Adventure Rider radio code, I'm extending that uh, until the 15th of September. Uh, after that, the price goes up about $400 each trip. So, 
you know, the November trip, again, is going to be major off-road. The February trip is for those folks who don't want to do crazy off-road sections. Um, there will be some uh, off-road sections, some sand sections, but it's going to be more two-up friendly and more tarmac friendly. So it's going to be more of the twisties, and it's going to be more of a cultural kind of experience, less challenging riding. It's still very challenging, but it's going to, you know, have everybody kind of catch their breath and experience the unique culture uh, down in the Copper Canyon. So it sounds like more like a, a like a travel adventure rather than a, you know an epic ride. That's right. It will be an epic ride, but uh, um, compared to November, it's going to be more of a <laughs> more of a relaxed pace. Nice. Yeah. So the money that's being raised for for the boarding school, what do you do? How do you, how do you handle that? Well, it, that's a challenge, kind of getting getting everything transferred, you know, from here um, down down to the school, just in terms of the exchanging of different countries. But what we're going to do is use part of the profit that we make from this trip to help the boarding school. Last year, we helped uh, them purchase uh, uh, chalkboards for the a couple of the classrooms. And, uh, you know, th- this trip, we're going to kind of help more with the kitchen and more with kind of general needs that they have at the school. You know, they do need uh, a new computer down there or two because the last one they were running is like a 1992, you know, old school computer. So they need they need that that kind of thing right now. 92? I, I mean, it's old, man. It's old. Wow. I'm telling you. I mean, you might you might plug like a 2400 baud modem in it, you know, <laughs> that that kind of thing. Like just maybe for a word processing kind of experience. That, that really, I'm being honest, is an old computer. So to see what you've done for the school before, do they go to the Good Adventure Company website? Yep. So good-adv.com, and you can see on our blog more about the trip and what we are doing for the school down there. Wow, very nice. So they can get the discount right now, which is, that's a considerable discount. So you're saying $17.50 now if they use the uh, ARR discount and $21.50 after September 15th. And um, on the notes here that you sent me, you're, you're still giving people 10% off if they use the ARR discount code when they're checking out. That's right. Uh, we appreciate uh, folks coming from Venture Rider Radio. So we are, you know, at the coupon section, uh, put ARR and you can get 10% off or free shipping. And that, of course, was J.J. Lewis from the Good Adventure Company. If you want to get in on that Copper Canyon trip, you better move soon because you only got a couple of weeks, I think, to, to get this real deal. www.good-adv.com and go to their trip section. Adventure Rider Radio is supported by, in part, Max BMW Motorcycles, who's been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your electrical system and will inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty, which is new. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. See it for yourself at www.cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, who offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding green chili adventure gear is also the exclusive usa distributor for outback motor tech a canadian company that specializes in high quality protection for motorcycles available at www.greenchiliadv.com 
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works tirelessly in the background. You never hear her voice, although you may one day. Who knows? Maybe soon, actually. you got to keep listening for that. Anyway, it's time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses now. Ride safe, and just be, hang on, before you go running off to ride your bike, I was just going to say, if you have the extra cash and you would like to make a donation... We would sure appreciate it. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button and contribute to help fill the gaps here at Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. I'm Natasha Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.